Hello, friends. Before you enjoy this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast, I was hoping you'd let me ask you a little favor. We work hard here at the Pillar to try and bring you news and analysis about the Catholic Church that you'll find interesting, engaging, and hopefully timely. We also do some of the longer-form investigative work that we really think matters, both to good journalism and to the life of the Church, and we're doing our best to make this work. To that end, I was hoping many of you might consider subscribing to The Pillar, which you can do at PillarCatholic.com. It would mean the world to us. Just a thought. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and fellow Pillar Editor, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. Begates, J.D. Ed, today is, well, today isn't, but um, for us, but this podcast will be released on the the Solemnity of St. Joseph, so in a certain way one can say that, one could say that today is the Solemnity of St. Joseph and the magic of release dates, I suppose. How how are you, uh, how are you celebrating the Solemnity? I think we will probably mark the Solemnity by eating beef of some kind. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. That is also how we are marking the solemnity we we were going to grill some steaks but then we um decided we didn't want to grill in the snow so we're going to put a put a roast in in the oven do you have a burn barrel for paperwork wow for for anything is that some sort of a grilling thing no no a a literal burn barrel an an oil barrel with the top cut off that you can burn stuff in no if i'm going to burn stuff i usually just do it in my fire pit outside Oh, okay. Because those are really effective ways of uh, clearing, you know, a snow-covered patio. So if you were looking to grill and you, you were worried that it was just too snowy and icy out there, you could you could fire up that. and uh, Burn the snow? You're saying well, shovel the it. snow into the burn barrel? Is that your suggestion, Ed? No, the ambient heat of the burn barrel will, will melt. Oh, so then any any portable fire device would work for what you're suggesting? Well, possibly, but I think... Port- portable fire container would work for what you're suggesting. Probably, but I think barrels are... You know, because of their construction, uh, probably uniquely suited to this. You but... think barrels are uniquely suited to it because you like so much the idea uh, uh, and the and the branding of having a burn barrel at your disposal, and and and, and almost in this conversation, framing this conversation in such a way as to make it seem nearly ridiculous that I don't have a burn barrel at my disposal should I need to, you know, shed clothes I used in the commission of a crime or something like that. I I take issue with the idea that a that this is a question of branding. I <laughs> Really, isn't this the reputation that you most like having for yourself as being the sort of fellow who is regularly out at the burn barrel burning documents and other kinds of, uh, other kinds of incriminating evidence of your various activities? I, I absolutely dispute the, the idea that I, I have incriminating evidence uh, that I need to dispose of. I do sometimes have confidential legal material that mm-hmm, 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 I may mm-hmm. wish to, you know, no longer have physical copies of but I, and you I don't, don't have a shredder i suppose i do have a shredder but i don't trust it the missus uses the shredder i have you seen batman returns it depends no i've not seen batman returns i don't think i, I highly doubt i have but it Danny depends DeVito was the, the penguin oh yeah i mean yeah, yeah when it came he produces out, the whole you know pages and pages of shredded documents that he's painstakingly taped back together I that's think. because it only did vertical it was ribbon shredding it wasn't crosshatch shedding, shedding uh, shredding i mean ribbon shredding is an amateur's game well Fire is a great cleanser, J.D. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I, Ed, I don't have a designated burn barrel, although if I needed to burn some papers, I would do it in my in my fire pit or something. My, I have a gas fireplace in the house, you know, with a with, with a, the kind of glass front that doesn't open, so I, I, I wouldn't be able to burn things in, in that. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not much good that, then. No, not much good to that. I mean, it does the job that it's there for, which is to warm... The room in which it's located, and even other rooms, and to create the ambience that comes from uh, comes from a fireplace. But no, it's it's not much use to me as a destroyer of documents. I'm afraid. Okay, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, again, I, your your lifestyle is a mystery to me. But <laughs> yeah, you do how, you. I, how odd it is that I'm. How odd it is that I don't have uh, I don't have a designated burn barrel. I, again, I'm, I, no judgment. No well, Ed, no, thank you. Thank you for not judging me. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I, 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 I'm not entirely certain that I believe it, but I thank you at the very least for saying it. That's very good, good of you to say. 
Um, Ed, uh, let's uh, let's uh, move on. We don't have a whole lot of time for chit chat, and here you are trying to kind of distract us with all this stuff about the burn barrel and the solemnity of Saint Joseph. We got work to do here. There's a lot of work to be getting on with. It's been a busy week. It has been a busy week, and uh, the place to start with us, as as you know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, as you know, what we tend to do on this podcast is to discuss the life and affairs of the church in various ways, and uh, the goings-on of um, of the internal life of the church, and especially at the level of the Holy See. And, you know, that's a limited cross-section of the life of the church, to be sure, but it is the cross-section of the church which we tend to discuss on this show. And uh, on Monday, there was uh, some news uh, that, uh, that emerged from the Holy See, from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. But before we get to it, Ed, there is a diversion that I want to talk about. I just want to take a minute here. Okay. Um, I meant to do this at the top of the show, but I got sucked into a thing about burn barrels. Um, you know, Ed, we are going to talk about uh, a statement from the CDF that is somewhat controversial, and that will probably lead us to talk about other issues that are controversial and difficult. And I think all of that is important, and it's kind of what we do as we break down uh, news from the life of that corner of the church, and, and I'm glad we do it. But before we do, I, I think sometimes it, it's possible that by focusing on those things, you know, we can... Um, we can uh, lose sight of the perspective that allows us to say the church, in fact, is the communion of the baptized, and the life of the church is principally lived in the family and in the parish and uh, in the apostolates and of, of daily life of, of the church, and a very, very small piece of the life of the church is lived in the dicasteries of the Roman Curia, even though that's the kind of thing that we tend to focus on. So, Ed, I'd just like to hear from you for a moment or two something of, of interest, some piece of good news, or something that gives you some sense of hope or encouragement or a consolation for you from the life of the church in a broad way? JD, can you, (laughs) why do we have to do, we do this all the time. You you insist on asking me about something that I am not prepared for and have, and just JD, you, is there anything edifying? Why do we have to do this all the time? What you're talking about is why do we have to have a sort of reciprocal give and take in conversation, Ed? And and I would say the reason for that is because that's the sort of generally expected social norms with regard to conversation. I I agree about something and then I'm glad that you agree that that's what this is, is we are coming perilously close to small talk and dare I say chit chat. It's not small talk. And the reason is because the chit-chat was the thing about um, how are you, or the burn box, the burn box. The the chit-chat was the thing about the burn box. This is Ed. Many people look to us and listen to us and read us to hear about the life of the church, and we often talk about the dark corners of the life of the church, and I think that's important, and I'm glad that we do it, and it's in many ways a central part of our mission. However, from time to time, I think we should talk about the illuminating, encouraging, and inspiring parts of the life of the church, lest we seem to be merely naysayers or merely critics, that instead we seem to be celebrating the whole of the life of the church, taking into account her various charisms, apostolates, manifestations, churches, sui juris even, in order to express in fullness the way that the Lord is moving both through the church and the way that the Lord might be needed to move in a spirit of conversion towards certain aspects of the church. This is all. Okay. In that case, I, I give you the, the religious sister uh, in Myanmar who was kneeling down in front of gun-toting forces of anti-democratic oppression in that country and begging them to cease the violence or or shoot her before they before they visited any violence on on the young people or, or others protesting in the streets. I found that to be a courageous and heroic witness of the church in in a deeply troubled place in the world and uh, the kind of um, the kind of faith that truly inspires and saves souls. That someone who places uh, their own life between the life of innocent others and, and the danger of death and does so rooted in the certainty of life everlasting and the witness of Jesus Christ. So I found that very edifying and very helpful. How's that? That was wonderful. JD, is there anything you would particularly point to as a, as a source of edification and solace in as we as we enter the dog days of Lent? Oh, I was going to say that none thing, man. You kind of took mine. Okay. <laughs> no, I I I was okay. Uh, I I, uh, I was going to say a couple of things. One, just I have been one one thing that has been encouraging for me or edifying for me has been uh, of late really real see, seeing in a couple of ways the ongoing kind of witness or the ongoing kind of work of, uh, of, of Catholic schools in a time when so many schools have closed and now you have like teachers unions at war with the city over when to reopen and when to let people into the school and you know you just have sort of this ongoing um, frustration and and division um, with among so many schools in so many cities and 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 and, and while that's all been going on in so many places, Catholic schools have just been continuing on, 
in, uh, in, in formation on a day-to-day basis, and not just continuing on, but finding new ways to serve uh, families who are impacted by the pandemic. And um, I've been hearing from so many Catholic schools who have been finding ways to uh, raise, new ways to raise money in order to scholarship people whose families have been impacted financially by the pandemic. And and especially, I, I was talking with somebody yesterday who was just talking to me about um, uh, discussions in their school about how to make a shift from operating under the presumption that uh, families who send their children to the school are living the Christian life and therefore sort of like focusing on academic, you know, intellectual formation um, to, to the exclusion of other things, to um, ridding themselves of that presumption and beginning to say, you no, know, families who send um, their children to our school are sometimes living the Christian life, but sometimes have not been sort of formed in living the Christian life, living a Catholic culture at home, living according to the liturgical calendar, knowing how to pray together, um, even being sort of evangelized in, in, a, in a preliminary way, and beginning to sort of think about the school as a locus or a sort of um, platform for the proclamation of the gospel to the entire family and then the formation of families in um, in the life of the church and especially in communion with each other. Uh, they were sort of saying this is just a, a way that we're beginning to really uh, imagine our school because um, we know that many of the people who send their kids to our school are not formed in Christian culture. And I was just really encouraged to hear like, oh, Catholic educators are thinking about this critically important thing and trying to um, uh, make and, and develop new things. So I was encouraged by, by that. That is good. It, it shows a mind a mind for mission and for evangelization, which the church always and ever urgently needs. I concur. Okay. On Monday... Now can we talk for... about the Germans? <laughs> Bitte? On Monday, on Monday, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a, responsium, a response to a question that was posed to it uh, about the laseity of liturgical blessings for... Um, same-sex unions, and, and kind of they clarified that they were asking, or they, they clarified in the, in the response, that they were being asked about sort of liturgical blessings for um, essentially sexual and romantic partnerships, uh, same-sex same partnerships, in the technical sense of the term, homosexual partnerships, um, and the possibility of liturgical blessings for, uh, for people in such partnerships. And the CDF said that um, such a thing would not be possible for the church because the church is not able to um, sort of bless something which the kind of relationship which is um, by in itself objectively disordered. And again, it clarified that what it's talking about is a sexual coupling of uh, of two people who which resembles marriage. And the CDF said, no, the church can't give a liturgical blessing to such a thing because it it appears to uh, give an approval to and a sort of consent to um, the idea that such a relationship and mode of being is. Uh, a fruitful mode of being and something that contributes to human flourishing. And the, uh, the congregation said, no, this does not contribute to, to human flourishing um, because God made our sexuality for an, uh, a certain thing and um, and our, the certain thing that God made our sexuality for is marriage, to be expressed in, in marriage. And, uh, and that response was largely a response to the proposals of the German bishops that we have been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks uh, to allow... Uh, such blessings in a liturgical context for uh, you know people who hold themselves out to be uh, homosexual couples who hold themselves out to be married, um, and in fact the practice of the um, conferral of such blessings in some German dioceses. Yeah, um, it, it was a fairly straightforward document. Yeah, it uh, it delivered in the words of one American cardinal nothing new, uh, it, and I mean you know they've there's been well there's been predictably absurd uh, reaction from most secular media coverage uh, to this, you know, saying that this is the church being homophobic or retrograde in some way when what the church has taught and always teaches and always will teach and what the CDF very clearly said is any sexual activity, any any sexual relationship outside of marriage is itself fundamentally sinful that that is that is the nature of sexual activity outside of marriage and the church cannot bless sin now what i found interesting in in the sort of wider reaction to the cdf's statement of you know i I think it's fair to call the obvious in in terms of you know the the teaching of the church Uh, what i found interesting is it shows again how allergic that we as a as a society but also whole sections of the church have become to the notion of sin, mm-hmm. that you can't call something sinful because that is, you know, I, I guess an offense against people who who might have 
committed a sin, which I, I find um, really hard to understand. I mean, I, I understand that in a in a completely morally relativistic secular society, the concept of sin is itself anathema because everyone has to determine for themselves what what is good and what they want to do. And so, if you're, you know, the supreme arbiter of of the notion of the good for your own life, the concept, the idea that someone might tell you that something is sinful that is wrong. Uh, would be a, a terrible affront to you and an offense. But within the context of the church, you know, what do you think the church is for if not to call sinners to conversion? Um, and what I find remarkable about this is, you know, you've seen from sort of predictable corners of of the U- of the church in the U.S., people saying that, oh, well, this is once again, the church is, is, is you know, going out of its way to, to be mean to gay people. And it's, I, I just... Th- I, I vastly and I you know normally it's you who are who are offering a more charitable interpretation of people and me saying nah just call bad actors what they are I mean in this case I really do go back and forth on whether these people are just incredibly poorly formed in the faith and just the concepts of you know the basic philosophical concepts of human nature and logic and the meaning of words or whether they are sort of deliberately choosing to misrepresent what the church teaches and says but the idea that the church could have said anything other than what it did. I find very hard to take seriously because this has been the teaching of the church forever and is rooted in very fundamental moral principles and theological principles which are not going to change and the church's own anthropology which is not going to change. So I, I find the sort of the, the pearl-clutching shock um, that some people have chosen to display to be, it, it has the whiff of the disingenuous about it. Um, but also that, you know, the idea that this is somehow an, an articulation of um, homophobia on the part of the church is equally absurd because the CDF made it very clear in their statement that this applies to every stable sexual relationship that is not sacramental marriage. This applies to heterosexual couples in, you know, civil unions after a divorce. You know, this is this is not the church cherry-picking um, the the sort of culture war topics it chooses to fight. More to the point, it wasn't the CDF's idea to talk about this, that it was responding to, to a, a question. question. Can we do this? To yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Can we do this? It was responding to uh, a dubium. I just found the entire, the entire way in which this statement was received to be extremely um, politically calculated and performative and i found it very very deeply distasteful and i think if if you are an authority in the church especially if you are a cleric a priest or god forbid a bishop who is setting out to basically throw shade at the perennial teaching of the church and the teaching authority of the vatican um, and doing so in a way which i consider to be fairly disingenuous with a goal to you know sort of stirring up cheerful opposition to the concept of moral truth in the church's teaching i i just find the whole thing very very distasteful it really it didn't make me happy at all one of the things i would add to that or 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 kind of yeah one of one of the things i'd add to that is that um uh, among the reactions those that say you know those that i have seen that have said sort of why is the church still here why is the church responding to this as you say you know there's an element of like well um there's a discomfort in in the notion that sin would be called sin and uh, and those kinds of things and i think there's truth to that the other thing is i think that there is you see um you see coming out in responses to this something which doesn't surprise me but is is nonetheless sort of peculiar which is a sort of um, an expectation that the church considers herself free to make judgments about things like this according to, even according to her, solely her, her experience, sort of unvarnished, or according to a, dis, a discussion, a sort of weighing of traditional Catholic ideas relative to contemporary practices and um, a kind of um, consideration of the fact that, you know, society has changed and culture has changed. And I, I want to talk about the fact that society has changed in a minute because I think there is some there's another side of this that we should explore. But the point is that there seems to be a whole set of responses that don't consider that the the church considers as a sort of primary obligation in discerning sort of the moral acceptability of any behavior, the question of what the deposit of faith says about this. In other words, like that the church's moral teachings aren't sort of like being made up as they go along because there's a question of like, is it a good, what's a good idea or not, or even sort of just judged as they go along according to philosophical reflection. Um, but that there is the idea that there is an objective deposit of faith, a, a revelation by God of, um, of 
both self-revelation and moral teaching, which is a kind of self-revelation actually for God. And the church's job is to uh, unpack and authoritatively teach that deposit of faith, but the church isn't sort of free to make moral reasoning apart from like recourse to this objective reality, which is the deposit of revelation. And so this idea that like, well, we thought the church was going to change this. It's like, well, wait a minute. If the church perceives that she has always taught that certain, that sexual activity outside of marriage period is wrong, then there's no, and, and that that's sort of a, a divine command, which I think is pretty clearly understood to be the reality in the church. There's no sort of going back on it because culture changes or other thing changes, that certain things are just the consequence of the deposit of faith and are not fodder for sort of ongoing reflection, nor are they kind of like, you know, so in the in the LDS for, for Mormons, the, the way that many theological decisions are made, moral decisions are made, ecclesiological decisions are made, is that the, the the quorum of elders and I can't remember the head guy's name. Do you know the name of the head guy? I believe he's he's referred to as the prophet. The pro the, is it the apostle or the prophet? I don't know, but either way, he is de facto a prophet. Right, for, exactly. Uh, yeah, he has the ability to. You're right. Make, he's the president and to receive of the and promulgate private revelation. And, and he and he receives and promulgates private revelation. That's precisely right. That he can an issue comes up, he can pray about it. He can say, "This is what God told me," and that becomes sort of a, the doctrinal truth. And there does not need to be coherence between one doctrinal truth and another. One prophet can receive a message that says X, and another prophet can say, oh, I've received a message that says anti-X, the opposite of X. And that's okay, because this is what God has revealed, and so we don't have an obligation to sort of consistency. We're not dealing with sort of unpacking one objective reality called revelation. Instead, we're just getting the revelations as they come, and we don't have to. they don't have to make sense. That's not a good way to think about it. Um, the church does not perceive herself to be interpreted, you know, to be um, guided by private revelation in that way. And so there's there's not sort of the kind of freedom to just say, well, it used to be X, but now it's anti-X, and that's the way it is. So sort of the expectation, especially from prelates, that like we thought that would happen, just strikes me as being surprisingly either calculated and, as you say, performative, or just surprisingly kind of naive. Well, yeah, I... I... I don't know which it is because I guess the we what we've done is we've come to the sort of water's edge of what I am prepared to to accept in my own mentality about what some leaders in the church you know may may privately feel about the faith which you know again if you think that the if you think it is within the church's gift to just monkey around with the deposit of faith to just uh you know refashion in any way it sees fit uh, perennial moral teaching and the fundamental understanding of of human nature. If you think that's something the church can do, let alone should do, then I don't really understand what you think the church is or what you think um, the faith is. You know, it, the and I mean, you know, we we're used to. I mean, this is fundamentally, I would argue, been the sort of ideological direction of travel of the Anglican Communion, uh, particularly over the last two hundred years, which is to basically change from. Um, this is in broad strokes. I'm not suggesting this is representative of every single Anglican's personal faith. I'm just saying this has been I, I, what I perceive to be the broad trend of the Anglican communion uh, is to is to depart from Christianity as a as a religion uh, fundamentally representative of the objective truth of God and His moral and natural laws, uh, and live through sacramental realities and towards a sort of understanding of Christ as a as a moral myth, which can be reinterpreted and applied in different ways as society involves, but the underpinning of it genuine, generally is sort of, you know, altruism, self-sacrifice. Mm, right, exactly, yeah. Um, you know, fundamentally being, humanistic being good, virtues. Being nice, caring about other yeah. people, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's sort of... In, 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 but, I mean, again, if, if people think that it's like, but, but people want this, so the church has to allow it. If that's your understanding of the exercise of teaching authority in the church, then you have the intellectual depth of a Sheryl Crow song. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> if it makes you happy is not a... Well, first of all, it's logically opposed to what the church actually teaches, which is the things that we think will make us happy 
do not, in fact, feeding our own disordered appetites, whatever they may be, be they sexual or be they anything else that we might be disposed to through our fallen human nature, will not, in fact, bring us happiness. That this is the entire prophetic witness of the church. This is the entire reason why it is so important that the church's mission is to call sinners to conversion, is it's not a question of handing down moral diktats saying, I'm going to slap you on your wrist if you if you do the bad thing because, right. well, because the big man in the sky wrote, you know, wrote a law and you've got to follow the rule. No, it's because the church is articulating a vision for full and authentic human flourishing, right. that there is a way of living our humanity in dialogue and in harmony with God that ultimately brings a far greater level of fulfillment than simply, you know, chasing after the things that we instinctively think that we want. I, and again, if this is this is so basic first-year seminary stuff that if you're a bishop or a cardinal in the church going, well, you know, there goes Rome again, you know, trying to, you know, just not getting with the times. It's like, I, I honestly don't understand what they're in the game for. Well, and, and especially because it reflects, I think, as you say, a rather sort of anemic view of the Christian life, this view that the Christian life is fundamentally a set of no's. And, um, and those, those set of no's, you're right, are the boundaries of a vision for human flourishing. And, I, I, you know, the, the, the frustrating thing about saying like, well, this is, um, a lot of people are hurt by this, a lot of people are going to leave the church, that's it, period, and that's the, that's the end of the story, or, you know, those kinds of things, it like misses something that I think, gen- genuinely do think is needed in, in the life of the church, which is more reflection on, okay, what does, uh, what does evangelization and pastoral care and incorporation into the life of the church mean for people who identify as gay? This is, um, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of, being able to identify as gay in a public way is a relatively new phenomenon in the life of the world. And, you know, there are people who, who who identify that way and who want to practice the faith or who are in need of the Lord as is everyone. You know, what does it look like to think about you know, how to kind of engage and um, uh, offer the kind of pastoral care that helps to form people, not just for chastity. I think it's reductive to sort of say, like, well, how do you help um, people who identify that way as being chased as if that being chased is a as if struggling to be chased, anybody has a corner on the market of struggling to be chased. We all struggle to be chased, um, I suspect. And uh, but but I think there genuinely is a question of like, okay, if the answer is no, what is the yes? And um, and the yes, the yes in the most abstract way or in the most true way too is um, a life of Christian discipleship. I think there are a bunch of sort of questions that come before or after that, depending on how you're looking at it, but that are like, okay, well, what does it mean for me to live the gospel in this way or that way, in this situation or that situation that, that apply to any number of people and that rightly are sort of should be meted out to, to help people in various kinds of situations know best how to live the gospel? And I think there genuinely is more work that the church can do to think about how to r- respond to those questions from people who identify as gay and... and um, uh, and be able to do that in a way that is not sort of overridden by politics or um, sort of uh, overridden by um, either sort of unduly kind of dismissive of a set of experiences or unduly sort of a, um, just sort of uh, affirming to a set of experiences without sort of juxtaposing them with the teachings of the church. I, I think there is a need for more thought about kind of robust, serious catechesis and pastoral life and uh, and ecclesial life for people who, who identify as gay, because I think oftentimes it's true that um, the church doesn't always sort of know what to do. I mean, honestly, know what to do when someone says, I'm gay and I want to practice the faith, and what does that mean in the parish? I mean, I honestly think that there could be far more sort of guidance and assistance in, in that way. I, I um, would agree with you that there certainly can be, and I, I, and I wish there was. Right. But do you not think that part of the reason why there isn't Part of the reason there's a sort of institutional paralysis of how do we find a far richer, better way of talking about these issues, of welcoming people who identify as gay into a, a, an open and, um, you know, holistic inclusion in parish life. Don't you think part of the reason why the church can't do that is because any attempt to, you know, sort of grapple with those issues inevitably gets turned towards the, well, yes, but what we have to do is change the church's yeah, teaching. I think that's true. No, I think that's true, right? So, I mean, that, that uh, it's, 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 it I'm blocks not off any right. kind of authentic yeah. pastoral right. care yeah. or development because yeah. you know that if you, you know, the, almost immediately it's like, well, where are we building this bridge to, Jim? I, I think, yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that if that becomes the com- the conversation, and so it's helpful for anybody, right? It's helpful. Huh it's helpful in, in married life too, right? I mean, like if I'm saying there needs to be sort of more robust formation for married life and we haven't sort of, we, and if, if, if there were clerics right now saying, well, 
Um, husbands who want to engage in sexual activity outside of their marriage uh, should be affirmed in that, and there's a possibility that the church could give liturgical blessings to c- relationships that explicitly identify as sexual outside of marriage. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be absolutely necessary as a sort of precedent to discussing family life ministry to say, whoa, 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 that isn't it. Well, um, no, you say that like it's so a that's crazy why you need to draw to line. how absurd this is, but this is exactly what happened after the uh, after the Pope issued a Morris Letizia, as you had people saying, well, no, the church should be blessing sexual unions between heterosexual couples that weren't valid marriages because that's more pastoral, man. Mm-hmm. And I'm or sorry, people this hippie dippy tie dye blown in the wind, whatever you want to do, the church has got to find a way to say yes to because God forbid we say you can't do the thing you want to do and call it sacred. It's, I'm just so fed up with it. It's so yeah. disingenuous. And and the part that frustrates me is that it, it gets in the way, that gets in the way of being able to have real, honest, thoughtful discussion about, well, yes. how, how, what does it mean in, in, in certain new sociological realities and, and, and uh, to, to proclaim the gospel and to, uh, and to help form people in faith and help them be incorporated into the life of the church. So that's what's frustrating to me about it. It's frustrating to me about it too, and I, I just find it so debased that um, you know an, an entire areas of pastoral care and engagement by the church and you know parish life are reduced to well, how can we tell people how they can have more sex and we approve? I mean, <laughs> what a narrow vision of human flourishing do these people have? It's all about well, yeah. But when can I take my pants off? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, th- this is such an such a human, flat, earthbound, lacking any kind of, you know, higher dimension or looking towards eternal life or anything like that. It just, it infuriates me. I, I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's that part. Should we talk about what this actually means for der synodal vague? Yeah, I think it would be good to talk about what this means in that context. So, I mean, the, 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 the CDF did not say who posed the question to which they responded simply negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, before going on to give a two-page context for that, no. Um, but it it was pretty clear that, you know, and we talked to some people who work in the Congregation for the Doctrines of the Faith. Uh, in fact, we talked to them last week, and they said, yeah, we're ready to fire on this. Uh, just waiting for the Pope to tell us to do it. And uh, the Pope did, and they published it, and we went back and said, was this about the Germans? And they said, well, of course it was about the Germans. Are you crazy? Um, so what we have here is basically uh, the CDF issuing, you know, uh, a kind of, Nicht, nicht, Elsgesicht to the German Bishops' Conference uh, and their plans for, well, not plans for, I mean, they already are blessing same sex unions in churches in Germany. Mm-hmm. This is a part of parish life mm-hmm. in dioceses in Germany. There are books of quasi liturgical blessings mm-hmm. uh, that you can, yeah, they can get. Not the, I almost yeah. said that you can use. You can't use them. The CDF has said you can't use them, right. but nevertheless, hasn't stopped bishops putting their putting their own name on the books yeah. and writing forwards to them and things. So the Germans are doing this anyway. Um, and they're going to continue doing it. I mean, uh, Bishop Georg Batzing, the head of the German Bishops' Conference, uh, at least deigned to acknowledge that uh, there there are limits to doctrinal development in the church and that they had to be mindful of this in their ongoing discussions and that the CDF's viewpoint, as he put it, not, you know, teaching of the universal church, but it's it's a view, mm-hmm. you know, again, not relativistic at all, um, has to make its way into their conversation, uh, which they will continue to have in Germany and decide whatever they want to do in Germany and continue to do whatever they want in Germany because no never means no if Rome's saying it. Um, which, you know, I, th- I, this kind of, in the game of table tennis that the Germans and, and Rome are playing here, where the Germans say, well, we're going to do this. And Rome says, no, you can't do that. And they say, well, we're going to do it anyway, but we won't actually say out loud we're doing it in defiance of you. So how about that as a compromise? And back and forth they go. Um, I mean, we're getting to the point where, I mean, Cardinal Velke in Cologne has been warning for more than a year that this could lead to a de facto practical schism of, of Germany with the universal church. Uh, we've seen other bishops uh, in other parts of the world now start to wake up to this as actually being a live possibility. I think it was Bishop Philip Egan in Portsmouth in England who said mm-hmm. something similar this week. Uh, and everyone's just kind of waiting to see if if Rome still has the ability to assert the authority of the universal church teaching and discipline and communion with the hierarchy of Rome or not. Um, I, I would argue that the Germans have very clearly said Rome doesn't have the guts to, you know, to stop us and they're not yeah. going to. So mm-hmm. we're going to do what we want. And then other places 
in, in the church, uh, in other countries where they would like to do something similar, uh, will see that we've been able to do this in spite of Rome, mm-hmm. and then they will do it too. And then Rome will basically have to accept that we now live in a doctrinally and disciplinary federal church where there are just different rules and different articles of faith in different parts of the church depending on what people want Mm -hmm. and rome will just have to accept the sort of anglicization of the catholic church uh as a as an established fact because if there is basically global mutiny on a widespread enough scale there's something you can do about that and that will be a huge problem Uh, we will have effectively another western schism Mm -hmm. which is terrifying to think about but uh, you know, it doesn't seem to terrify the people who are calling for it. You know, when you see cardinals like, for example, Blaise Subich saying that we need to have um, creative and resilient responses to Rome saying you can't do something. I mean, that is, if any other U.S. bishop called for creative and resilient responses to a clear Roman no on something, it would be Cardinal Supich who would be patrolling the aisles saying that's fundamentally disloyal to... Right. The principle of unity with the Pope. How dare right. you? Right, exactly. No, that's absolutely right. That is that is absolutely right. But I mean, you know, Cardinal Supic, I guess, only thinks it's important that you follow the Pope's lead if you if you happen to agree with the Pope, which is ironically <laughs> exactly what he accuses everyone else in the U.S. Bishops Conference of doing. But you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting today is to your point about kind of will Rome, where will Rome go with this? Is did you see the statement of Cardinal Farrell? I did. I did. Um, uh, Cardinal Farrell was sort of asked uh, uh, by a He's journalist. A jolly fellow, isn't he, Cardinal? Yeah, Cardinal Farrell. Cardinal Kelvin Farrell is the prefect of the dicastery for uh, the dicastery for life, marriage, family, and some other stuff. Did, I cannot remember the name of this it's dicastery. Human flourishing. Human something. Something integral human development. No, integral human development is another one. No, integral human development. Yeah. yeah. But, okay. Uh, so but, anyway, get, yeah. Cardinal well, it Farrell used was, to be the congregation for the lady. Right, exactly. And now he's in charge of uh, the family life office of the Holy See. Anyhow, Cardinal Farrell is asked, uh, you know, what can you, basically he's asked by a journalist, like, can you just say something about the the Holy See's uh, clarification on Monday, especially in light of the fact that the church opened uh, today uh, something called um, the Year of Amoris Laetitia, which is a year in which the church is invited to study more statistics, which is all very fine. But anyhow, this is a this is an initiative of Cardinal Farrell's office. And so he was asked, you know, can you say something about the Holy See's response uh, or the Holy See's publication in response to the dubium on, on Monday and what it might mean for the year of a more statistic? So basically give us a comment. And Cardinal Farrell offered uh, two par- two lengthy paragraphs, I would say probably three, four hundred words, without really saying anything that I could kind of parse. So he, he talked for a little while about the difference between civil marriage and sacramental marriage as he understands it, that sometimes we fail to understand a distinction between sacramental marriage and civil unions or other forms of marriage. Amor Satitia speaks to sacramental marriage, but people who are not sacramentally married can receive the benefits of pastoral care in the church, and there are different pastoral situations in the world today. All of this is a little bit confusing to me because there are lots of people who are married, not, who, who have the relationship of marriage, but do not have the sacrament of marriage because they're not baptized, or one of them is not baptized. So if a Catholic marries an unbaptized person, they have a they have a the natural love relationship of marriage, an honest to God, real life, valid marriage, which is not a sacrament because a sacrament is a marriage which exists between two baptized people. And there are entire near entire continents in which, well, there are entire continents in which the majority of marriages are not sacramental marriages because they ha- they take place between the unbaptized, right? So, yes, of course, there are... In the history an... of humanity and in the current world, most people are not baptized Christians, and therefore right. most therefore, marriages, while perfectly valid, are not sacraments. Right. are not sacraments. So he sort of says, hey, don't forget there's this distinction, and everyone can have pastoral care. And then he says, uh, uh, we're open to accompany all people. Blessing something is a sacramental related to the sacrament of marriage. And therefore, it can be difficult to understand, but I'd like everyone to understand how clearly we are to accompany everyone, organizations that work with people of same-sex attraction and work with them, and situations where people who are divorced and remarried, and we accompany everyone. And so I don't want anyone to think that we won't accompany them. And honestly, Ed, I read it a few times, and I did not know what the answer to the question was, and I'm not kind of trying to 
pick on Cardinal Farrell. I'm just saying the Holy See was asked about this, and what they came up with was two paragraphs that I had difficulty parsing what it was that they might have been trying to say, and I think that might have been the point. It's a tactic that you can use if a journalist asks you a question that you don't want to answer called word salad, where you just say a lot of things, a lot of phrases, and hope that someone thinks that there's an answer there, or hope that you start to talk, speak extemporaneously, and an answer will come to you. Sometimes, even on this podcast, I begin talking and hope that an answer or a point will come to me, but not in this case, because in this case, I have a point. The church was asked, what's the deal? And the answer was, blah, 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 we're not sure. And uh, But we like everyone, and we want to accompany everyone, and so here we are. And uh, in light of the controversy of Germany, German bishops sort of pushing back and saying, we're not going to listen to the Holy See, and bishops in other parts of the world, or priests in other parts of the world, sort of celebrating those who say we're not going to listen to the Holy See, and, uh, you know, Austrian priests are signing a document that says we're not going to listen to the Holy See, and then prominent American priests celebrating all of that on social media, you would think that there might be something more than just, um, we're not sure. I think Germany might be right. I, I think that the Holy See might not, you know, respond fairly and, and that uh, respond clearly to what's happening there. And that leads to real questions because at some point, at some point, the Holy See will have to respond. If, if what's happening in German pastoral practice is something which is you know, which is contrary to the teachings of the church and which the CDF has just said is contrary to the teaching of the church. And it just sort of continues and continues. Man, at some point there, that, I don't know. I don't know. You cannot just imagine that ignoring that problem will make it go away. Here's the thing. You're saying at some point, whatever point you are trying to articulate, we've already passed it. It's already happened. These things are being done in German parishes. They they have they have a Eucharistic quote unquote Congress coming up in Germany, which will be held between Catholics and various Protestant denominations with you know all the big wig German bishops present, and everything. And they made it very clear that they were going to have a policy of intercommunion at this thing. And the CDF said, "Oh no, you won't." What are you kidding me? The Protestants do not. First of all, they do not have valid Eucharists, and second of all, they don't believe in valid Eucharists. So right. you can't. You can't have intercommunion with people who don't actually believe that the Eucharist is what the church holds the Eucharist to be. And you know what the German bishops did? They said, all right, fine. We won't say that there is an official policy of intercommunion. We'll just tell everyone, you do what you think is right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, we're there. This has already happened. And what is going to happen? The CDF doesn't have enough people to fill the building they're in. They can't go around and patrol, you know, the outer the outer parishes of the, you know, in the diocese of Limburg. They, they don't have that, and that's not going to happen. And you're not going to see, uh, you know, new bishops who actually value the faith and communion with the hierarchy in Rome and recognize the primacy of the See of Peter appointed because who's doing the appointing at the Congregation for Bishops? Guys like Cardinal Subic, who want nothing more than to see creative responses to Rome actually trying to announce the truth of the church's perennial teaching. I like we're, we're there. We're, I know. We're I just don't want, back, I know. I just don't want to, be, I just, I, I do not wish to be uh, demoralized by that. Well, and, and um, I don't want the, you know, the underground church in China to continue to get persecuted. Yeah. Right. You know what? That's where we are. Yeah. So um, because I do not want to be demoralized by that, I would like to think that there's some, that there, that there may well, I mean, this is another way to look at all of this is, um, another way to look at all of this is that Germany has been doing things that are contrary to the teachings and liturgical practices of the church for some time. A long time. Uh, I remember I remember when I was in university, JD, and I went to, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, I used to go to a music festival every summer with some friends of mine in Germany. And I remember we'd have to, we'd have to go a long way because the festival was not in, you know, sort of Catholic areas of Germany. Uh, we had to go a long way, a couple of towns over, take a train, for quite some distance to, to get to mass on Sunday. And I remember, and this was after the Rome had um, definitively suppressed the practice of self-intinction. Remember that? Mm-hmm. When you could no, kind of treat the Eucharist really, like coffee really and practice. donuts. And just, I know what it is, but it wasn't really practiced here in America. So I right, but it was a thing, you know, yeah. where people would sort of, you know, take the host and then treat it like a coffee and donut and dunk it in mm-hmm. the chalice and, you know, whatever. And they said, you can't, and Rome said, you can't do this for yourself. Like in some places, if you have to, the... The, the priest or deacon distributing communion can can intinct for you and mm-hmm. you can receive on the tongue, but we're not otherwise doing it. And I remember going to the parish in Germany and they only allowed self-intinction. That was the only way you were allowed to receive. 
Mm-hmm. And I, there was a moment of def, desperate confusion on my part as I couldn't understand why this person was yanking the chalice away from me as I tried to reach out for it. And it, and it was very strange. Um, so yes, to your point, the Germans have been departing from the disciplinary and liturgical norms of the church yeah. for quite some time. Yeah. And I, what I'm trying to do here, Ed, is I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about it. I'm just trying to say I, I, uh, I think there ha- I think two things. One, a point of encouragement for me or consolation for me, I suppose, is that, um, and I have said this on the show before, but that this kind of thing, which is, you know, the, the a, a deviant sort of liturgical praxis in an entire nation or nearly an entire nation is, um, is not a new thing in the life of the church, that in every era and generation there are, uh, there is a, there is division in the church between fidelity and schism and between um, orthopraxy and heteropraxy and that the church, the, 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 the role of the Holy Spirit in the church is the perdurance of the church despite the fomenting division that comes from Satan. So again, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish. I'm just trying to say I, I, can, take, I can take consolation in the fact that the church endures and perdures by virtue of the Holy Spirit despite century after century of division and... Um, heteropraxy and um, nevertheless there are real consequences to that heteropraxy and that you know entire parts of the world that were once vibrant parts of the faith have either given way to secularism or become protestant because of division in the life of the church and that we should lament that and we should see that there are real consequences to these kinds of things so i guess that's my first point my second point Oh man. Well, while you consider that, allow me to agree with your first point. I Okay. <laughs> um I do, I don't want to sound like I'm you know being a you know No, it's a serious thing. I mean, world. It it's it, no, but it's like you don't want to sound Pollyannish and I want to be clear. I'm not saying well, just forget it, man. The horse is bolted, it's all over. On the contrary, as I said, you know, we, <laughs> the nightmare scenario that we're looking at here is another western schism. Another meaning we've had them before. Right. Yeah. And we will inevitably have had have to have them again because you know, this is this is the nature of the church in, in present as a as a reality in history that it is very much um, both human and divine, and the human side of it will constantly be trying to rip itself apart and to acknowledge that we are where we are, that whole sections of the hierarchy of the church are trying to separate themselves from the authority of Peter and from the universal yeah. teaching authority of the church should neither shock us or dishearten us. I mean, it's not pleasant. I would prefer... Yeah, but we don't have to feel as though it's a sign, a coming sign of the apocalypse either. No, or on that the we contrary. Reject... This is just part of history that we're going to have to live through. And, and, and this is know, an important I, part, too. I wish I wasn't living through a part of history in the church where I think we're going to see, you know, serious fractures. Uh, of course I do. I'd also love to, you know, live in a period of history where the Cubs won the pennant every year. But, you know, that's yeah. that's life. You don't get to this pick the is... window. The, the, you're right about that, and, and I, I think an important part of that too is that there is a, there is a, there there can be a tendency for those who are demoralized by these kinds of things, or or even those who appreciate the the historical significance of them, to buy that fact, be demoralized about the practice of the faith, or to feel as if the the, the faith isn't true. Um, the measure of the church, we should not expect that the church will be um, uh, a morally per- perfect society. Um, she, she's uh, we should expect that she's a society protected in perdurance by the Holy Spirit and that she's a sacramental society and that um, she, she has the mission of proclaiming in, uh, of, of teaching and proclaiming the truth. We should expect all those things, but we should not expect that the church will be a morally perfect society. And, and this can be a time when you sort of see that the division that comes from Satan in which we kind of recognize, okay, well, in a certain way, this is all the more reason why um, why we need the church because... If this is how we are with grace, imagine, you know, we, we needn't look too far to see how, how we would be absent grace. Um, but also um, because we practice the faith because we believe it is true even if and when others don't. Um, yeah. Even with, if and when others say that it's not true. So that's, that's my first point. My second point is, um, which I remembered, my second point is, you know, we wrote last week uh, that, the, that there were a couple of congregations in Rome who had anticipated responses to Germany, and they were waiting for the Holy Father to greenlight them. Uh, after we wrote that, as it happens, the Holy Father greenlit one. Um, and uh, and he told the CDF that they could issue this response about um, about the possibility of, of the, these liturgical blessings. We should not ignore the fact that this is a step of the leadership of the Church at the highest level, of the, of, of the Pope, um, to, in fact, intervene and make clear uh, to the German bishops 
what is necessary and expected of them as teachers of the faith. Now, they have a choice. Do I, in fact, wish to be a teacher of the faith? Do I wish to fulfill the, my office as a successor of the apostles um, or not? Do I think that accommodationism is so important that I kind of, uh, that I kind of reject the, the, the re- revelation and its implications um, and reject by that fact unity uh, with, with, with the church herself um, or not? They have a choice to make. And the Pope, of course, does not want a schism. He has the extremely difficult job of like trying to um, bring people into the fullness of communion who are teetering at the edge of that communion. And um, and I think we, you know, we should pray for the German bishops at this point who have a choice. We should pray for the Holy Father who has a difficult task, but not just that, but we also can see, oh, okay, in fact, we see that the as much as we are might be demoralized about kind of the situation on the ground, we also can be encouraged by the fact that, okay, the church in the person of the Holy Father, is beginning to address that situation and call for uh, unity rooted in truth. And that, uh, that, that in itself is a great gift in the life of the church that we can be glad for, whatever its consequences are. Yeah, and, and you know, we have, to, we have to live in cheerful hope about these things. And, and to be clear, the cheerful hope we are to have is not that this will all just work itself out. Right, not sort of false optimism that says no, everything's fine. No, it's a fine. cheerful hope in the life eternal. Right. <laughs> it's a cheerful mm-hmm. yeah, hope exactly. that Christ will come in glory. That's yeah, mm-hmm. that's the cheerful hope to which we are called. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to have what I would, what I think um, those who are, are seeking to, to fracture the church's uh, teaching authority and, and the body of church teaching lack, I, I think is what every Catholic is called to have, which is, to have clear in their mind that you know our eyes are not fixed on this world but on the next, yeah. And you know when when that is when you have that rightly ordered perspective, um, your priorities change, and I think that's that's something important, especially during Lent, because right now we are supposed to be looking towards Easter, which is terrifyingly close, and I am in no way prepared for it spiritually. Um, but that you know that, that we are all going towards the sort of if you like final Easter, you know when 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 Christ you know and it, you know it's the as near as I understand it the perennial, um, uh, it's not a teaching of the church. What do I want to say? It's the there is a pious expectation um, that one of these years Christ will come. <laughs> that you know one of these Easter vigils will be our last. Right. And exactly. That should be our focus and. That you know, you asked, you started this off by asking me, "What am I? You know, what's going on right now that gives me hope?" I, the, looking forward to the Easter Vigil, JD. That's what's giving me hope because I didn't yeah, get cool. to go to one last year, and I'm absolutely going to one this year. Good. I bring all that up because, um, you know, one of the kinds of feedback that I get from people who listen to the podcast and maybe you get it too is people who say, "Hey, listen, I am edified by the show because I struggle with these things in the life of the church, and I struggle with sort of what it means for me as a Catholic and." I want to both be clear-eyed about the reality of the life of the church and at the same time um, not despondent over it or not feel like I should leave the church because of it or something like that. And I think there is a path of clear-eyed, honest assessment of the division and uh, the significant division uh, within the church and in some cases the failures of moral leadership that have caused it and a way of not being scandalized by that. I mean, we should in a certain way be scandalized by it, by not being so scandalized as to be paralyzed by that or to lose sight of the fact that um, <laughs> that that, 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 that this is the sort of perennial lot of the church and that this is in fact the perennial lot of humanity to be, uh, to be afflicted by division and incoherence with truth and, uh, and, and in some cases a lack of courage and that it is only grace that gives us the capacity to overcome those things and then to be able to like um, uh, to go beyond um, no's into the yes to the flourishing of our life in this in, in this life, and then the flourishing of life, the life to come in eternity. So, yeah, I think there's a way to be both. Yes, and and more importantly, uh, I for myself, I say this having, you know, gotten a bit frustrated uh, earlier in in the show, that this is also not um, it is not a cause, still less a call, to to hate people, to be angry with people, even people that we think are being disingenuous in their uh, engagement with 
the Holy Father or, um, you know, with the Pope. Still less. And I mean, you do see this, and I have seen this on Twitter, and I find it absolutely revolting that people taking advantage of the CDF statement to basically be horrendously awful to gay people or about Right, exactly. People. Like, the, exactly. Like, I, I, I think when the church says, you know, uh, gay people are meritorious by virtue of the fact that they're people of respect, compassion, and sensitivity, that's, that's I forget the ordering of those, but that's totally true. And you do see that there are people who take the have taken the CDF statement. There are people who have taken the CDF statement and sort of said, oh, this is horrible. But there are other people who have taken the CDF statement and sort of turned it into a bludgeon, right, to say, well, these awful people got what they deserve, something like that, I mean, which is a, a morally repugnant. It is morally repugnant, and those are the people for whom there is really no life and there is no place for in the pastoral life of the church. Um, but, you know, what are you going to do? People are going to be awful. Yeah, yeah. It is part of the human genius, J.D., that people are endlessly inventive in the ways in which they can be Indeed. awful to one another. Indeed. That's right. <sighs> That's depressing. I wish I had a game. I wish you had a game, too. Oh. Did you, you didn't prepare a game for us at all? I did not. I was, uh, I, I was busy reading and writing about the, the, the crazy uh, that is the church in Germany today because, you know, while, while you we You did were... that. Well, I had, I had a bunch of meetings today. Like, I, I had a bunch of meetings today. And, and let me thank things... you, J.D., for going to those meetings. <laughs> well, I'm glad you say that because I, like, I had a bunch of meetings today that basically are for things related to the pillar. Well, they were pillar meetings. I had a bunch of meetings for the pillar. And when, I ha when, when a day like that happens where I happen to have a bunch of meetings, and that means I'm not sort of producing any journalism, at, I feel badly because, uh, you know, I, I, because I would like to be... Uh, you know, I feel like I'm not contributing if I'm not sort of contributing a productive journalism thing. So I, I must admit, I sort of feel badly about that. But um, I know you do, and that's why uh, it doesn't bother me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got a game T tomorrow or today, if you will, if you want to sort of continue the fiction. Is the solemnity of whom? Uh, Saint Joseph. So Ed, we're going to play a little game. Who was called... Irish, by the way? He's not Italian. Uh, Saint Joseph was an. Israelite. No, of course. Or I just mean really, if you prefer. Because, you know, it is a, I find it endlessly fascinating, comical fixation of American Catholicism that everything has to be nationalized, um, but but never the country we're in. No one would ever be so. But, you know, you always, you, you meet these people who say, well, the Virgin Mary is Polish, and St. Joseph is, is uh, you know, Italian, and St. Patrick is Irish, none of which are true. Yeah. So uh, Yeah, I, that's true. But I, I, I nevertheless, I find it, I, I find affected nationalities within um, a room full of American Catholics to be endlessly entertaining. <laughs> okay, good enough. We're going to play a little game, Ed. Uh, we're going to play a game called Places Called Joseph. Places Called Joseph? Place of called jo Places Called Joseph. We could call it Where's Joseph From if you want, or Is Joseph Irish, or whatever you want, but I'm making it up on the fly, right? I'm totally and completely making this game up on the fly. So if it's not a good game... The reason is because I'm making this game up on the fly. But uh, with that said, I have made it up now, so I am ready. I used whatever it was that you were just talking about to. I sort of pretended to listen while I prepared a little game. <laughs> so, Ed, are you uh, are you ready to play uh, Places Called Joseph? Sure. Okay. So the gist of the game, which I'm making up as I go, is uh, is that I will describe a place for you, and the place is named Joseph. And, uh, and then I'll ask you where this place is, and you'll take a stab at it, and you probably won't get it, and that'll be kind of funny. Okay. That sounds like fun. Okay. Ed, this is a ghost town, which was first established in 1985 and uh, is named for Chief Joseph, the famous Nez Pierce chieftain. It's in the Gem State, Idaho. Dang, dang. Oh, it's in the Gem State, Ed. Where is the ghost town of Joseph? Idaho. <laughs> yeah, that one was a gimme because I said it. I didn't know if you would know what the gem state was. Was that? Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, state nicknames are oh. not a strong suit to mine, so that would have been a really good I one. I didn't think so I would because have puzzled you're over not that. from here. But if you're going to yeah. tell me the answer in the question. Yeah, yeah. well, you, you, you got really that one. Well and so you are, congratulations, you are one for one. You got it. Joseph, Idaho is a ghost town that was incorporated in 1905 in Idaho and uh, and has since become a ghost town and is named for... Chief is it Joseph still a legal person? Paris. I do not know because as I say, Ed, and this is going to shock you, I am making this game up as I go along. Fair enough. Okay. Joseph, a city in this state, was originally named Silver Lake in Lake City. It has a population of 1,081. It's named for Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce people. 
and it is in at the northeast corner of this northwestern state. Where is the city of Joseph? I am going to go with Oregon. Nailed it, buddy. Joseph, Oregon. Hey. You are two for two. Wow, you really know your Josephs, you know? A lot of people don't realize that about you. How Joseph are you, Ed, is the thing <laughs> on. Pretty you friggin' Joseph, it. buddy. Joseph, Oregon is a city in uh, in uh, Walloa County, Oregon, originally named Silver Lake and Lake City, as I said. The city formally named itself 140 years ago in 1880 for Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce. And uh, its principal industries are... Um, what do you suspect? What do you suspect its principal industries are? Uh, lab mice. Oh, you were close. Insofar as I can tell, timber. Okay. But still, close. Yeah, okay, good. Great. Okay, Ed, how Joseph are you? This Joseph is a mountain peak in the southern section of the Gallatin Range. In this national park, where is Joseph Peak? I'm, I'm just going to guess Yellowstone. Wow, dude, you are three for freaking three. Well done, Ed. Yes, indeed. Joseph Park at 10,420 feet, which hardly is a peak, is a mountain peak in the southern section of the Gallatin Range in Yellowstone National Park. Again, you guess, Ed, who it was named for. Uh, Here's a hint. It's the same as those other ones. Chief Joseph of the Nez Chief Pierce. Joseph of the Nez Pierce. Well done. Okay. I mean, okay, Ed, how Joseph are you? I don't know if this is a good game, but it is a game. Okay. Uh, this I feel like it's a good game for an on-the-fly game. You know what I, I mean? think you're doing very well. You're you're creating something out of nothing here, and I appreciate it. <laughs> I am. I uh, I don't want to say I'm sort of yeah I'm sort of exercising the fullness of my creative capacity right now. But okay, as of 2000, the city of Joseph in this state had a total area of 0.9 square miles, a population of 269 people, 92 households, 73 families. The population density was 301.7 people per square mile, of course. And uh, what else can I tell you about this town? Oh, this is interesting. 70% of the population identified as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, Where is this town of Joseph? Is it possibly in Utah? It is indeed, Ed. Well done. Four for four, man. Are there you any are places named Joseph east of the Rocky Mountains? I have not come across any yet. I have not come across any yet, although we still have one more to go. So we shall see. Uh, would you care, Ed, to venture a guess at where uh, Joseph... Would you care, Ed, to venture a guess at for whom Joseph Utah was named? I'm, I'm going to go with Joseph Smith. Oh. I wish you were right. I, I wish you were right because you're doing really well at that. But it's not. It's named for I swear Joseph. if you said Chief Joseph of the Nespears, I'm going <laughs> to lose my mind. No, 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 no. It's named for Joseph Young, the eldest child of whom? Uh, Brigham, Brigham Young? Brigham Young it is, indeed. Yes, you, you redeemed yourself there. Well done. When you say the youngest son, I mean, didn't he the have... The eldest son. Eldest son. Okay. How many sons did Brigham Young have? I, I, I just assume I somewhere in the region of 300. I mean, the guy had 16 wives or something. I, I think that might be so. Let's see if we can find For it. For the purposes of clarity, canonical disclaimer, he did not have 16 wives. He had one wife at most, mm-hmm. and the rest of them were concubines, and that's bad. Joseph uh, Young had 50—gosh, my eyes are getting old—56 children. And uh, I'm not sure how many self-identified— wives he had let's see here oh this is interesting there's a debate among lds scholars about how many women who were sort of affiliated to uh brigham young that's what we're talking about here yeah brigham young i said joseph smith but there's a debate among lds scholars about how many women who are sort of affiliated to brigham young qualify as wives but there were 55 women to whom like, Brigham Young... Is this like a Major League Baseball team? Like, how many... Like, did you have to play a certain number of games in the season to qualify? I mean... Dude, I have to tell you, I am totally getting the answers to every single thing that we're doing right now as we're getting them. So I only know exactly I what I like say. I feel like you're teasing me with with small amounts of information. Well, let me tell I you what I can about I only have more questions as a result. 55 women were sealed to Brigham Young during his lifetime in the in the... What, like buried alive with him? No, no, in the polygamous ceremony of sealing, which is oh, a I see. thing. However... Do we have a pastoral plan? Can we get a pastoral plan for bringing that into the life of the <laughs> It church? is suspected that not all of the 55 marriages were conjugal and that 
Young didn't live with a number of his wives or publicly hold them out as wives, which, as Wikipedia tells us, has led to confusion on numbering. A book published in 1887 gives brief biographical stretch, sketches and photos of a total of 26 wives. What I think happened is that a number of women were sealed to Brigham Young for, for essentially political purposes or to consolidate his power, but that, uh, but that they were not uh, themselves... Uh, they were not them. Uh, they were not themselves, uh, you know, in a conjugal relationship with him. Although marriage is by definition a conjugal relationship, I think what they mean is they didn't have sex with him. And these are not marriages. Yeah. Okay. That's weird. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow, not not named for Brigham Young, but named for Joseph Young, the uh, eldest son of Brigham Young. You learn something new every day. Uh, Ed, how Joseph are you? Uh, this canyon is a two thousand foot. Deep a two thousand foot deep basalt canyon in two counties spanning two states in America's western region. Uh, the canyon contains Joseph Creek. Joseph Canyon contains Joseph Creek, a tribute of the Grande Ronde River, which flows into the Snake River, a tributary itself of the Columbia. The geology of the canyon is typical of the Columbia Plateau, uh, in that. Um, well, I don't know in that what, but I can see here that the geology is indeed typical of the Columbia Plateau. The canyon was named—oh, I can't tell you for whom it was named because I'll ask you that later. But the canyon was named for a fellow named Joseph. And uh, prior to European settlement, um, the indigenous people to the region used the canyon bottomlands as a travel corridor from summer campsites in the Wallowa Valley to winter campsites along the Grande Ronde and Snake Rivers. Ed, in what states can you find the Joseph Canyon? All right, I'm I'm just playing the odds on this one. Uh, it's very beautiful. I'm looking at pictures of it now. I will I will start by saying Arizona. Oh gosh, fool! <laughs> no, that that was I'm not even that was not a serious answer. Okay, California. Oh gosh. Okay, I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, I'm sorry. Oregon. Ah. And. I'm Washington, I assume. Washington nailed it! Wow, four and a half for five. Ed, you really know your Josephs, and uh, and uh, yeah. So Joseph Canyon, which is in both Oregon, and Washington, very beautiful according to this Wikipedia picture that I'm looking at. Ed, uh, for whom do you imagine that Joseph Canyon is named? Um, I'm going to go with Joseph Chamberlain, the British Victorian politician, <laughs> no, and widely credited as the you know the mind of one nation, Tory. I am very very sorry. Named, of course, for. Chief Joseph of the New oh, <laughs> Well, Ed, how Joseph are you? You have done very well. You're far more Joseph I'm not than I would have expected. Nearly as Joseph as Chief Joseph of the Nez Pierce. Oh, nearly. Very, very, very nearly. I'm very proud of you about that. And thank you for playing uh, How Joseph Are You, a game constructed entirely on the fly. And interestingly, a game constructed without typing anything, but only with clicking uh, various things from the St. Joseph Wikipedia page that I already had open for an unrelated reason, um, just sort of clicking and clicking until I could get somewhere that would give me some opportunity. I, I think you so, did very well. I, yeah, I think you did very well, and I think I did very well. That was probably peak game for the Pillar Podcast. Possibly, although we did just do a St. Joseph game that didn't mention St. Joseph. St. Joseph. Once. I was thinking about that. I was wondering if I should have included the city of San Jose, but... I didn't, and the reason is because, again, I was just sort of clicking until I got to something and I was making this whole thing up on the fly. Anyhow, Ed, a blessed solemnity of St. Joseph to you. Right back at you, man. Okay. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Apostolate uh, under the tutelage and intercession of St. Joseph. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by Pillar co-founder and editor Ed Condon, and we are praying for you through the intercession of St. Joseph. Toodaloo. Say goodnight, Gracie.